Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll speak with political observer and analyst Murray Dobbin about the results of the recent provincial elections and their implications for Canada's national politics. And with the Occupy Wall Street movement growing and spreading beyond New York City, we'll speak with Derek O'Keefe about the movement from inside Canada and with student activist Dan DiMaggio from the Centre of the Action in New York City. Here are the alert headlines for the week of October 13, 2011. Protesters in New York took part in a millionaire's march on Tuesday, marching through the Upper East Side past the homes of wealthy residents, including billionaire David Koch, News Corp CEO Rupert Murdoch, and J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. The union-organized march saw protesters from the main Zuccotti Park camp join forces with organizations such as United NY, the Strong Economy for All Coalition, the Working Families Party, and the New York Communities for Change. While the march was in support of the Occupy Wall Street movement, it was not organized directly by it, according to a spokesperson for the Working Families Party. The Occupy Wall Street movement has jumped from New York to other major American cities. In Boston, 100 people taking part in a protest, including a group of veterans, were arrested in the early hours of the morning last Tuesday after clashes with police. In Washington, D.C., several protesters with the Occupy D.C. movement were arrested upon entering a Senate office building to unfurl banners. Occupy Canada actions inspired by the protests in New York are being organized for Saturday, October 15th all across the country, including Toronto and Vancouver. Protesters in Vancouver plan to meet at the Vancouver Art Gallery, while those in Toronto will occupy Bay Street in the city's financial district. The majority of people are no longer feeling that they have meaningful representation, said one of the Occupy Bay Street organizers. The ballot box is no longer, perhaps never was, working in our best interests. Labour Minister Lisa Raitt's office confirmed that the federal government will be stepping in to block a strike by Air Canada's 6,800 flight attendants. Raitt will refer the matter to the Canadian Industrial Labour Board, which will block the strike action and buy the government more time to pass back-to-work legislation. While a tentative deal between Air Canada and its flight attendants was reached on September 20th, union members rejected the deal and will walk off the job on Thursday. Labour Minister Lisa Rayet hinted Monday that the federal government may look at changing the Canada Labour Code in the future, citing the need to, quote, look at the bigger problem. Rayet said the rejection of the two consecutive agreements shows there may be a problem with the Labour Code itself. Ian Lee, labor expert at Carleton in Ottawa, could not remember a labor minister ever making a similar comment in the past. This will become the pretext and the context to legislate changes to the act that, knowing where this government is coming from, will make it more difficult to go on strike, Lee said. Those were the alert headlines for the week of October 13, 2011. 
Now for Around the Left for the week of October 13, 2011. The Occupy Wall Street movement is spreading to Canada. National Occupy Canada actions will take place Saturday, October 15th in cities across the country. For a list of locations and links to Facebook events, websites and Twitter feeds, check out the events section at CanadianDimension.com. Planet or Death? Climate Justice versus Climate Change is a series of study sessions taking place in Toronto over the fall. Based on the ideas of the 2010 Cochabamba Conference, these study sessions aim to prepare for the December 2011 climate justice events in Durban, South Africa. The third session, Act on Climate Change or Ignore It, will take place on Sunday, October 16th in room 5280 at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. For more information, email boliviaclimatejustice at gmail.com or visit the blog www.t.grupoapoyo.org. The tough-on-illegals and tough-on-crime approach of the Harper Conservative majority government are intrinsically linked. Prisons and detention centers disproportionately target low-income, indigenous, migrant, and racialized communities who are already over-surveyed and over-incarcerated. On October 16th from 6.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., join No One Is Illegal Vancouver Coast Salish Territories and Streams of Justice for a public forum and discussion at the Grandview Calvary Baptist Church, 1803 East 1st Avenue. For more information, email noii-van at resist.ca or call 778-552-2099. On Thursday, October the 20th, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., Winnipeg's FemRev Collective is organizing a Take Back the Night march. Take Back the Night is an annual international event to resist violence against women and children. Everyone is welcome. Meet at the Magnus Eliasson Recreation Center at 430 Langside Street. For more information, email tbtnwinnipeg at gmail.com or for a link to the Facebook event, check out the event section at CanadianDimension.com. On October 22nd, from 1 o'clock p.m. to 4 o'clock p.m. in Montreal, attend the second annual commemorative vigil and march for those who have lost their lives at the hands of the police. The purpose of the march is to remember these victims of police violence and abuse and support their families in any way we can. The family-led and family-friendly march and vigil will begin in front of the Police Brotherhood, 480 Guilford Street, Laurier Metro, St. Joseph Exit. For a link to the Facebook event, check out the event section at CanadianDimension.com. The CCPA is proud to present Stephen Lewis and Michelle Landsberg as the featured guests for this year's David Lewis Lecture. The lecture will take place at 7 o'clock p.m. on November 3rd at the Trinity Street at the Trinity St. Paul's Centre in Toronto. Join them for an intimate in conversation about their lives, their passions, and the future of this country. Following the lecture, there will be a fundraising social with members of the Lewis family and CCPA Research Associates. For more information or to buy tickets, go to www.policyalternatives.ca slash david-lewis-lecture. 
The School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, OpenMedia.ca, and the Vancouver Public Library present Media Democracy Day Vancouver 2011, taking place November 11th to 13th at various locations throughout the city. This year will feature keynote speakers, interactive panels, and hands-on workshops focused on critical analysis of media policy, citizen and alternative media production, and the transformation of the media system to make it more diverse and representative. All events are free and open to the public, but seating is limited. For more information or to register, visit mediademocracyday2011.eventbrite.com. Class dismissed. Capital's War on Workers and Democracy, the Parkland Institute's Fall Conference of 2011, will take place November 18th to 20th at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. The conference will explore the current attack on workers and unions, the accompanying attack on democracy, and how capital is working to hinder real action to protect our common environment. For more information, please visit parklandinstitute.ca. Fall Conference 2011. That's all for Around the Left for the week of October 13th, 2011. Last week, the people of both Manitoba and Ontario went to the polls. In Manitoba, the NDP claimed a historic fourth consecutive majority government, while in Ontario, the Liberals will now form a minority government, having dropped to 53 seats, one seat shy of a majority. Here to discuss these results further with us is Murray Dobbin, author, journalist, and frequent guest on Alert. Welcome back to the program, Murray. Thanks. So as I just mentioned,、uh, Manitoba Premier Greg Selinger will be leading the fourth NDP majority. In Ontario, Premier Dalton McGuinty will now be leading a minority, or as he called it, a major minority. So, what's your assessment of how these elections played out, and what was the message sent by the electorate? Well, I mean, I think back on the just after、um, Harper had won his majority, and he made this very arrogant. Uh, and presumptuous speech about how you know Canada was conservative and always had been, and the Conservative Party was、uh, was the People's Party, something to that effect, and went on and on about how Canada is conservative. And、uh, of course, this is completely false. This is sort of you know this is what he'd like to believe,、um, but in fact,、uh, Canada is is principally a social democratic country.、Um, its、uh, principal values are are sort of not. Uh, competition and getting ahead. His principal values are, are fairness and equity,、um, and looking after each other.、Uh, and sometimes those values don't express themselves very strongly, but those are the core values、uh, in Canada. And I think partly what happened. I mean, you have a whole bunch of factors that play into this, and all of them impossible to to really give weight to. But certainly the Arab Spring, in some ways,、uh, made the, you know got people's attention in terms of. You know, impoverished people living under dictatorships.、Uh, you know, fighting fighting for their right to to be heard.、Um, but I think people were just sort of tired of the of the、um, ideological right wing posturing,、uh, and just looked at the options. And especially,、uh, I don't know the conservative leader in Manitoba as well, but certainly what I know of of Hudak, the conservative leader in in Ontario, he was basically another Mike Harris. Extremely right-wing, extremely aggressive. One of the things he said he was going to do was make it impossible for unions to to use their union dues for political purposes.、Um, so, 
I think people just looked and said, no, I don't, don't want that. Uh, we've, we've got stuff here that we like. We've got decent education. And McGinty was not a terrible, you know, for a liberal premier, he was not a terrible premier. And he actually did put more money into education and improved that and put money into health care. So it was moving in the direction of a of green energy, canceling, um, you know, uh, coal-fired plants and not building, supposedly not building any new um, nuclear power plants um, beyond a you know, certain level. So I think people just looked at this and said, we'll, we'll go with what we've got. And we don't, we just, we're tired of, uh, of experimenting with, uh, with right-wing ideology. Um, and I think Harper played a role in that by how arrogant he was. And, of course, as your listeners will maybe know, he you know he was at a barbecue for for Rob Ford, the right wing populist mayor of Toronto, and was going on and on about how you know it'd be great to have a you know have three right wing governments, one in Toronto, one in Ontario, one in in Ottawa, and then we would undo all the damage that NDPers had done. And I think people just said, okay, so that's what he's about. He's not just a prime minister running for power. He's, you know, he's a right-wing ideologue who wants to transform the country. And people said no. So given these results, what do you think we can expect from future relations between the federal government and the provincial premiers? Well, that, that's a really interesting question, because I think in some ways that those of us who are not uh, involved in party politics, but involved in, in social movement politics, that might be a strategy is to begin to pressure our provincial governments to oppose this uh, radical agenda that Harper has at the federal level. Um, I mean, there will already be uh, tensions um, between the premiers and and, uh, and Harper. One of the key ones is the whole crime agenda, where where Harper is passing all these incredible bills, um, um, crime bills, when crime is going down, and and all the science um, suggests that this is the wrong approach. And of course, we know that. That Harper has contempt for science, so it, it has no impact on him. But much of the expenditure that will result from that legislation will be expenditures um, uh, hoisted onto the provincial governments because they'll, they're the ones who are going to have to build new jails. And you know, it, one could at least imagine a campaign to say to tell provincial governments, "Don't build them. You know, don't build the jails. And if there's no jails, then you can't put people in prison, and you'd have to you'd have to come up with some other." Some other approach, you know, in, in, in California, they, they have expedited the release of prisoners because they don't have enough jails to put them in uh, because of similar legislation, right? The, 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 uh, the three strikes you're out legislation has created so many new prisoners, they, you know, they can't stuff them into the prisons anymore. So I think it might be an interesting strategy for, for the left to begin to pressure certain governments, you know, certainly the the uh, the Manitoba one, maybe Ontario. Um, the NDP is almost certain to win here in a couple of years. Um, so, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see how, how that plays out. Well, we will keep looking at that in the future. So thanks for speaking with us today, Murray, and giving us your it. insights on, uh, on the recent elections. Okay. We've been speaking with Murray Dobbin, author, journalist, and frequent guest on Alert. For almost a month, large numbers of people have been gathering on Wall Street as part of a movement to express opposition to the economic policies that have disenfranchised 99% of the population of the U.S. 
To tell us more about what's happening on the ground in New York, we're joined by Dan DiMaggio. He is a New York University student, organizer, and activist, and uh, is actively involved with the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. So uh, welcome to Alert, Dan DiMaggio. Thanks for having me. Okay, Dan, do you want to maybe just uh, give us uh, a good sense of what's happening right now on Wall Street with the uh, the, the actions that have taken place so far? Um, what, what are spirits like on the ground? Sure. Um, so the uh, occupation down uh, at, by Wall Street in, in Zuccotti Park uh, continues, and I think spirits are very high. Uh, whenever, whenever you go past, uh, you can see that there are new people joining in every day. Uh, there are, are thousands of people who pass in and out uh, of the park every day, and uh, hundreds of people who who have been camping out there. Um, and also, there you know are now growing numbers of occupations in cities across the U.S. Um, and even internationally. Uh, and this has also become a springboard for. Uh, Actions beyond uh, just uh, in downtown downtown Manhattan. Uh, I know today some of the, the protesters from Occupy Wall Street went up for a billionaire's tour of the houses of uh, some of the the top of the one percent. Um, people like Rupert Murdoch, um, and Jamie Dimon, and, and other others. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about the 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 reaction on the part of uh, uh, police authorities? Uh, how have they uh, dealt with the protesters so far? Sure. Um, so, you know, initially this this movement started out back September seventeenth, um, and you know it was it was low uh, profile, and the the media was not giving much coverage, uh, but then. You know, as uh, the the protesters continued marching, um, and the, the NYPD, uh, you know, definitely tried to, to crack down. Uh, they they surrounded protesters on one march uh, with the, these new orange mesh nets that they have, um, uh, which they use to, to corral protesters uh, for mass arrests, and they pepper sprayed a few uh, young women, um, and that. Definitely galvanized the uh, the protests, and and we saw uh, thousands of people turn out the the following day um, for or later that week for a, a protest against the uh, the police. Um, and then there were the arrests on the uh, the Brooklyn Brooklyn Bridge of about 700 protesters, um, who many of whom felt they were led onto the bridge by the uh, the NYPD, um, and Last night there was uh, repression in Boston where a hundred demonstrators were arrested uh, after they tried to they had set up a second camp um, in in Boston uh, and the police uh, destroyed that and, and arrested those who uh, were trying to stay there um, that said you know in in New York the, the NYPD has really cracked down on our our civil liberties and our, our right to, to free assembly and to, to holding demonstrations, at least for the past 10 years, especially since September 11th. It's been a, a real, uh, it's been really difficult to, to march 
in the streets of, of New York, as anybody who participated in a protest here will tell you. Um, and this Occupy Wall Street movement has really uh, not only reclaimed this, uh, this park, but it has definitely uh, reclaimed the, the streets um, for, uh, for, for demonstrators uh, to, to you know, express their, their opinions in, in New York. So. Now, this seems like there's uh, two hallmarks to Occupy Wall Street. Uh, the, it's nonviolent and it's decentralized. Could you explain uh, the, the significance of those two um, elements? So, I mean, I think I think definitely, you know, there there are some on the right here, some some Republicans who have likened this to, to mob rule, you know, and have have essentially, you know, accused the protesters of, of harboring uh, some sort of violent inclinations. But of course. That that's far from the case. It's it's been remarkable to see that, uh, um, you know, just the the communities that have have sprouted uh, at each of these occupations, you know, and and the the fact that it has been the police again and again who have been the uh, the ones carrying out the the violence and and never uh, the the protesters. Um, I've seen you know great signs that that say. Uh, you know, I, I came here to, to protest uh, corporate greed and corporate control of our society, not, uh, you know, not, not to be arrested or whatever. Um, the decentralized thing um, has its pros and cons. It does entail a lot of very long meetings, um, and many of these, these groups are still operating on consensus. Um, it means that things take longer, but at the same time, um, it's really uh, allowed for a, just a, a, a culture of participation that is unlike what's been seen at most, what anybody has experienced at, uh, at most demonstrations where, you know, you go and it's very much a passive experience of listening to speakers um, and, you know, just marching around. But this has really allowed for the, the participation of, uh, you know, many more people than and and in and in a qualitatively different way than in in most movements in recent memory. Um, that said, you know there is. I was rereading the essay from the feminist movement of uh, about the tyranny of structurelessness, uh, and it definitely does suffer from uh, some of those problems, and they will have to be figured out, worked through, and overcome. But but at the same time, I'm it's 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 an entirely different movement than than anything we've we've seen at least since the uh, anti corporate globalization movement of the late nineties. Hmm. Now you've you're, the movement. It, it seems to be inclusive of of so many different kinds of people. Everyone from the you know, left anti capitalists to uh, you know Ron Paul folks. How? How can all of these people be united over the long term beyond just a kind of a down with Wall Street sentiment? You know, at some point, don't there have to be some specific demands expressed? And and what could result in terms of dividing the movement? Right. Um, it, it is true. There are, there are there are you know there are divisions within the movement that I think ultimately are un, unsustainable. You know, you, the, the Ron Paul types, 
will not, uh, you know, ultimately find a home uh, with the, the the many unionized workers and, and people from the labor movement and uh, people from all sorts of different uh, oppressed communities uh, and, and organizations that are participating. Um, you know, right now it is very much a, a broad, broad church that allows for the, the participation of, of all types. But I think that the message is clear. The message is not, uh, you know, that being put forward by uh, Ron Paul or the, the libertarians. Uh, the message is very much the... Uh, you know, from the left, uh, a left critique of the corporate control of uh, U.S. politics and the U.S. economy, um, and how that has benefited the uh, the one percent at the top at the at the expense of of working people. Um, you know, I do think, just just speaking on a personal note, that the the movement is going to also be confronted with the the political question. You know. Um, which, which always comes up. There have been the New York Times front page today even reports, you know, the Democrats are warily trying to figure out how to relate to this movement and how to, uh, you know, build upon the, its, its successes. Um, and meanwhile, of course, many of them, are, uh, have taken tremendous amounts of money and in fact are, are Wall Street's favorite, uh, favored candidates in many ways. And so that is also, going to be an issue um, as to how the movement will relate to elections um, and to the to the Democratic Party. And again, just speaking personally, I I think you know the, the time is ripe. It would be great. We should we should just form the uh, the ninety nine percent party. Uh, clearly, label the Democrats and Republicans as parties of the one percent. Um, you know, and uh, run our own candidates and. Uh, you know, on on a program challenging Wall Street's rule of our uh, country and put, putting forward demands for living wage jobs and health care for all, uh, good schools, and end to the uh, corporate education reform, uh, on and on. Mm-hmm. There, there's plenty of demands um, to make, but but that is you know that is a question that the movement will have to confront, um, and. You know, it's, it's it's being postponed, which is which is, I think, fine for the moment. Um, Dan, do you think you could uh, tell us a little bit about media coverage of the movement and and how helpful or not it's been? Are there any specific uh, uh, instances of of the media you know, distorting the message? So the media coverage of the movement um, for the first several weeks. Uh, you know, it was very, it was very dismissive, and in many ways, it, it still is. Uh, you know, it, it, it focuses on the, uh, you know, on the protest, on the, the encampment in Zuccotti Park as sort of a, a carnival, um, as instead of focusing on the actual issues that are being raised. But that is is changing, um, and it's I think it's changing. Somewhat dramatically, for example, the New York Times uh, last week. Uh, I was at a I was at this massive student walkout. Twenty five hundred students from campuses all over New York uh, marched to a larger demonstration, about thirty thousand. I spoke to a New York Times reporter there. They took my picture, um, and you know, I went on the internet the next day 
only to find that my picture was uh, had been placed in a slideshow in the fashion and style section um, on what to wear to a protest. Um, but meanwhile, uh, I think it was yesterday they, or Sunday, they, their editorial board actually put out a statement endorsing Occupy Wall Street, uh, you know, and saying this is, this is, uh, you know, we, we support this. Um, so it's, uh, they're very much, you know, having to grasp the fact that this, this movement has tapped into something, um, uh, that's quite deep, this, this deep-seated frustration um, with the stranglehold that uh, corporate America has over uh, this country um, and the fact that politicians are not doing anything about it. So uh, so I think the, the coverage is opening up a little bit, but it, you know, it still comes with all the, the problems uh, that are innate to uh, the, the corporate media in this country, you know, and then there's also the, the daily free newspapers in New York I've seen are, have, are routinely attacking the, uh, the demonstrations. The headline yesterday was sex, drugs, and occupy. Today it was pedestrians are prisoners of, uh, protesters, um, you know, which is nonsense. But the, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement now has its own, uh, paper, unofficial paper called the Occupied Wall Street Journal, which is absolutely brilliant and, uh, you know, getting that into the hands of, of, uh, everyone is a, is a real goal. They, they've published 50,000 issues of their first two editions and are trying to expand, uh, further, but. Okay. Uh, that's really touched nerve. <laughs> well, Dan DiMaggio, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing those, um, on the scene perspectives on, uh, this movement, uh, which is, uh, clearly a very historic movement. So uh, th- thanks for that, uh, for providing us with those details, and we look forward to seeing how this develops. So thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you, yep. And uh, that, my guest, was Dan DiMaggio. He's a New York University student, organizer, and activist. With the Occupy Wall Street movement spreading to Canada, there are a number of Occupy Canada actions taking place in cities across the country, including Vancouver. Joining us on the line right now is Derek O'Keefe. He is based in in Vancouver and uh, can tell us a little bit about uh, the uh, Occupy movement as it pertains to Canada. So, Derek O'Keefe, welcome to Alert. Thank you. Okay, so Derek, uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, uh, it, it seems to have uh, grown and, and surprised a lot of observers. Um, in terms of uh, the, the Canadian aspects, could, could you talk about uh, maybe some of the, the critical similarities that we're finding uh, in this country and, and some of the critical differences between uh, what's happening in New York and in cities in the United States and in, in Canada? Uh, well, like uh, everybody else, probably, I've been uh, really pleasantly surprised by how much the Occupy Wall Street protests have resonated in Canada and how much excitement and energy there seems to be to organize around this. Uh, just to give you an example, the um, uh, General Assembly, first General Assembly organized in Vancouver was this past Saturday. Uh, organizers had booked a room for about 100, 150 people and way more than twice 
twice as many people um, showed up. They had over 300 people. Um, we had to find another venue for the meeting. Um, and it was just uh, really, really heartening to see so many new people uh, engaged and, and wanting to both support what's going on in Wall Street, but also to highlight similar issues here in Canada. Um, and I really think it's a sign of, of a year where the whole world has been experiencing uprisings and really been um, taking inspiration from each other, starting in Tunisia and Egypt, um, you know, going throughout the Arab Spring, and now finally at long last seeing some um, popular mobilization in North America. Um, it is a little um, challenging or a little difficult to see exactly where the movement in Canada will focus. Um, there's a lot of ideas from the Wall Street occupation that that we can sort of share and spread and apply to Canada, but... Um, you know, I don't know that um, there's a symbol as potent as Wall Street uh, that we have. Obviously, there's Bay Street and uh, the financial sector, which, um, you know, in the top 1% here in Canada have benefited similarly uh, um, from policies that, that hurt the, the rest of us. But um, I, I think Wall Street is sort of a, a different and more powerful symbol for what's gone wrong in the States the last three or four years. So it'll be interesting to see what creative ideas people in Canada come up with um, where exactly this movement can focus. But it's, it's a really exciting time, and I hope that, you know, everyone who's um, sort of been around social justice activism for a while gives this movement a chance and, and contributes and gets, in, gets involved. And, you know, I think it's important to focus on the possibilities right now rather than, um, you know, maybe picking it, a, picking it apart a little too critically as, uh, as I think has tended to, to happen. Um, or, or, you know, people maybe not giving uh, some of the newer people the benefit of the doubt or being a little too negative about a lack of focus or demands. Um, we really just have to see this as a historic moment of, uh, of great opportunity where class po- politics and class issues are really coming to the forefront and uh, achieving a really wide hearing, in- including in the mainstream media. Could you uh, maybe address some uh, what you see as some of the uh, the critical issues uh, distinct to Canada that uh, that, that might be uh, on the docket, so to speak, in these uh, upcoming actions? Well, I hope just I hope this isn't too general an answer, but uh, it's where I feel we we should go. Just the disproportionate power that corporate Canada enjoys over our government. Um, you know, I don't think the uh, it's it's true that finance capital has has disproportionate power in Canada, but I don't think we should limit it to um, the exchange on Bay Street or just the banks and the financial sector. We should also look also look at the um, you know just the big industrial sectors in Canada and and just the terrible damage they do to the 99% of the planet, both in Canada and abroad as well. You know, when I think of Occupy Bay Street. I think of all the mining uh, companies that are headquartered on Bay Street and many of them out here as well in Vancouver and the business district of Howe Street. Um, so I'd like to see a lot of, um, you know, creative actions, for instance, targeting the, the mining company's headquarters. Um, we should be occupying Gold Corp, um, occupying other big Canadian mining companies that are doing so much damage um, abroad. So I see it as a chance to link up with sort of um, a lot of ongoing um, campaigns against uh, Canadian corporations. Um, other focal points, obviously, you know, there's there's a Stop Harper movement. Uh, many people were inspired by the direct action taken within the Senate, where when Harper was getting sworn in, when you had the the page uh, Bridget DePap who, who staged her protest and held up the Stop Harper sign. I think there's 
a lot of energy and a lot of ideas there that could be sort of tied in with this Occupy movement. Obviously, the conservative government serves and uh, protects the interests of the, of the 1% against the rest of us. So, yeah, I think, you know, it'll take time to develop. And again, I think, you know, sort of old, older, seasoned activists like myself, uh, longtime activists, we shouldn't necessarily all pounce on, on this new movement and, and try to um, direct things in any in any one way early on. I think there's uh, a lot of new energy and a lot of this is going to emerge organically and through these general assemblies. It's very exciting to see that a core part of the Occupy Wall Street is um, is daily and I think even twice daily general assemblies where, um, you know, chaotic, direct, uh, participatory democracy is taking place. And uh, it, it can be a messy and slow process, but I think it, it's very important. We have uh, fairly prominent progressive groups, including uh, an ostensibly progressive uh, political party, which is now the official opposition. Is there any concern about those elements uh, becoming part of the movement? Uh, is it uh, in terms of its possibly trying to uh, dominate the message with their own talking points, or are you satisfied that there are uh, guards against that sort of thing? Or is it even a, a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think there's still there's a bunch of people have have gotten involved, but you know, 300 people in Vancouver is still a tiny fraction of the population. So I think it is important to um, remain open and uh, allow in all kinds of um, political forces and and new activists and, and old ones as well. Um, you know, including members and and even elected uh, officials if they if they want to associate themselves with this movement. Uh, to target corporate power, to, to target income inequality. Um, unfortunately, I would say uh, most NDP politicians in Canada, in federal or provincial, uh, are going to stay well away from this, um, you know, unless sort of forced by popular opinion to uh, to sign on. Um, and it's exciting to me how the um, some of the framing of the issues um, and just the really direct challenge to, to corporate power in our society um, has been popularized by this Occupy Wall Street. We've, I don't know, I mean, I've grown up politically in this um, time where you, even the NDP, um, as you say, an ostensibly progressive party, is very, very cautious with their message. Um, you know, they tend to limit their policy proposals or, or the ones that they advocate publicly to, to very cautious reforms um, on the interests of capital. And uh, this movement that sprung up really very grassroots, very organically, has sort of gone right over the head of all of that. So I think it makes, in a way, it makes some of those questions irrelevant um, and sort of, uh, I guess, immunizes the movement against co-optation in a way. You know, that is, if the NDP is going to want to be part of this movement, they're going to have to do it on the, on the movement's terms, because I think those core messages uh, about 99% versus the 1%, um, corporate power, you know, the uh, the corruption of finance capital and the corrupting influence of, of corporate power on governments, all of those core messages that you're not going to have to see. It's not going to be possible for for a politician to come in there and, and water that down, I don't think, at least not in the short term. So I'm, it's not a concern. I think we should have the doors wide open for everybody. Okay. Derek, um, could you uh, talk address the the reality that between Canada and the United States there are some pretty there's some significant differences I mean the United States does not have universal health care for example I mean we have 
uh, social programs, and, and while they may be eroding, the, the situation here doesn't appear to be as desperate as in the United States. Uh, if we are in too much in sympathy with uh, the United States, is there a concern that uh, the greater part of the Canadian public might uh, tune out the movement within Canada? I I don't think so. I mean, I would have thought that it would have taken a lot longer for the Occupy Wall Street spirit to, to spread to Canada um, because of some of those factors you mentioned. But I, I think what's going on, I don't, my, I guess, somewhat optimistic take on it or somewhat biased take on it would be that um, there's just a very deep yearning for, for a real politics that addresses these issues, that addresses inequality in a, in a very straightforward way. Um, people are tired of, of mainstream politics that really waters down and or erases these issues altogether. So I, I don't see it as too much of a problem. Um, you know, it's true we haven't had the mass foreclosure, foreclosures um, with millions getting kicked out of their homes, but we do have a homelessness crisis in many of the big cities in Canada that's been getting worse uh, by the year. You know, it's a very urgent situation. We also have a crisis um, in, in so many First Nations communities because of the legacy and ongoing reality of Canadian colonialism. Um, certainly the situation for First Nations peoples in Canada is every bit as bad as, as it is for the poor in the United States. So there are real areas that need to be addressed. They need to be addressed um, in an in a urgent and straightforward way. So I think um, it's not going to be it's not going to be a problem. And also, you know, Canadians are we're famous for following uh, events in the United States a lot more closely than they uh, they follow things here. So um, in this case, I think it's going to benefit us because we um, we're used to sort of just looking south and being appalled by their politics uh, or, you know, feeling uh, empathy for them, having to deal with the Tea Party or the real sort of loony right that has so much um, so much power in the United States. So I think in this case, we, are the fact that we're looking south so much uh, is going to help us because finally, at long last, we have, uh, you know, what, what has the makings of uh, a real popular, um, popular left movement, the left populist movement, I guess you could say, that has caught the imagination. Well, Derek O'Keefe, uh, I will just have to continue to monitor these events and see how they develop over the coming weeks. Thank you very much for sharing your perspectives with us on Alert. Well, thanks for having me. And like I said, I probably erred on the side of, of optimism uh, today because we just had a big meeting. But, uh, you know, obviously we should should keep a critical eye on, on all these uh, things. But that's just sort of the mood uh, I think a lot of people are in this week. So thanks for having me on. Okay. And that was Derek O'Keefe. He is a uh, Vancouver-based activist and organizer uh, in advance of the uh, October 15th actions uh, in sympathy with the Occupy Wall Street movement. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is a Weapon, and today's show is about flags, all kinds of flags. One of my favorite songs of all time is a song I learned from a 1960 Newport Folk Festival album, and it was a recording by Martha Shlama singing this wonderful Puerto Rican song called Que Benita the Bandera, and as I investigated it, I discovered it was the song of Puerto Rican independence. And once back in the 60s, in 1968, I was on a huge demonstration in New York City where people were marching 50 people wide. There was a million people on the march. 
And along came this big Puerto Rican contingent. And the band was playing, Que Benita Bandera. And they had this big, huge sign that said, Puerto Rico Independence. And the cops tried to move on, in on them just as I was standing there to take the sign down. And they all had baseball bats, and the cops backed right off. And so here is the song of Puerto Rico Independence, Que Benita Bandera. Yeah. <laughs> 
Boniera Rosa, the song most associated with the Italian Communist Party. And before that, the song of Puerto Rican independence, Que Benita Boniera. Next, we're going to hear from Billy Bragg singing the Red Flag, but he's not going to sing the old, familiar, old Tenenbaum tune. He's going to sing a really traditional tune, which is how the song was written in the first place. The tune is The White Cockade. Here's Billy Bragg. The people's flag is deepest red, it's shrouded off the mass of dead. The Netherlands grew stiff and cold, their hearts blood died in every fold. Then raised the scarlet standard high, beneath its folds we'll live and die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. One holler has the darkest night It witnessed many a deed and vow We mustn't change its color now Raise the scarlet stand of high Beneath its folds we'll live and die So cowards flinch and traitor sneer We'll keep the red flag flying here It will recall the triumphs past It gives the hope of peace at last The banner bright plane of human rights and human gain. Praise the scarlet standard high, beneath its folds we'll never die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying Uncovered, swear we all to bear it on board till we fall. 
this song should be our parting hymn. Raise the scarlet standard high, beneath its folds we'll live and die. No cowards flinch and trick a sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. finish off the show today, we're going to have a group from Ottawa singing a great Canadian song, but it's their own version of it. They've rewritten it a little bit. They've added a couple new ideas into it, but here is The Maple Leaf Forever. In days of yore to this wild shore, French and British strangers came and planted firm their conquerors flags where native peoples reigned. In struggle and in hope 
hope they forged a nation here together that there might wage the proud and free the maple Caused. Brave Canadians fought and died Now we their children guard The peace where hate and war divide We'll not break faith with glories past The torch we'll lower never A shining light to all the world The maple leaf from Arctic land to Great Lakes Strand, Bay despair to Nootka Sound, May patriot love unite us and true commonwealth be found. And may Canadians new and old uphold the great endeavor and proudly wave from sea to sea the maple leaf forever the maple leaf our emblem dear the maple leaf forever and proudly wave from sea to sea the maple Ottawa's the finest kind with the maple leaf forever. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on Ravel.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valpy, assisted by Selena Sirik. Alert headlines and Around the Left, prepared by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.